wanted to do something that was responsible and would have a multiplier effect on the lives of people. And so corruption obviously is the one thread that connects every evil in governance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. Today, we are delighted to have Lola Adekanya on the podcast. Lola is a licensed attorney, a member of the New York State Bar and the Nigerian Bar, and she has over 12 years experience as a corporate attorney and compliance specialist. She currently leads the Business Integrity and Anti-Corruption Program in Africa at the Center for International Private Enterprise, or short, CYB. In the interview, Lola, Niels and I talk about the work of CYB, the challenges of businesses in corruption-prone contexts, and the role of social norms. It was a lot of fun to record the interview with Lola, and I hope you enjoy it as well. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. And now, over to the interview. Welcome to Kickback, and we welcome this week Lola Adekanye, who is with Sight and has, well, been nice enough to, to offer her time and her perspective on a whole range of topics. Um, you are working on anti-corruption in the broadest sense, and We would like to know how you actually got interested in corruption in the first place. So Lola, could you tell our listeners a little bit about what got you interested in corruption? Since when has corruption been on your radar? What's, what's your personal history when it comes to that? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Niels. And thank you, Chris, for having me on your podcast. Really exciting to talk about um, corruption issues. I think um, this has become uh, not just a job for me, it's now a passion. And I think that's a hard thing um, when your job is your passion. I, I suppose I should take notes from you guys how you do this and and, and don't get depressed. Uh, but anyway, I so I'm I'm an attorney by training. I'm a lawyer. I went to I studied law in started my career out in England. I started out as an assistant company secretary in England, and um, that was my first experience with anti-corruption compliance. Actually, with a small company called Antico. Um, Tico was going to be acquired by uh, the investor ABN AMRO at the time. Uh, ABN was listed in the US and um, the FCPA was uh, one of the, you know, things that uh, Antico had to demonstrate compliance with. And this was new uh, to us in England. Like it was, it was new. It was compliance with anti-corruption. Well, what is that? Like paying bribes to a foreign official where like, and so I was thrown that not so important task at the time to Antico, it wasn't thing, but you know, PwC guys were like, yeah, you're, you're not going to get an ABN AMRO into this deal without having sound compliance systems in place. And so I was given the task to try to figure out how to set up a compliance program. I'm talking about 2004, uh, between 2004 and 2006, where there was really just one quite not very easy um, DOJ guidance to read um, that, that was helpful. Right. Um, but essentially, in eight months, we set up what we thought was a good enough compliance program uh, in, in Antico. Uh, the PWC folks in England looked at it, said, excellent, brilliant job. And their counterparts in the US said, sorry, this is not what a compliance program. This is not an adequate compliance program. And, and so that was my training ground. But anyway, I um, spent time there thinking about you know, development programs more because in my time in Warwick University, um, you know, I worked with civil society organizations advocating for uh, better standards, labor standards, you know, compliance with anti-corruption standards in countries like in India and, and the like. And my concern was, well, how do I spread the message about ethics and integrity because of the impact in the poorest of countries around the world one of which is my country as well. I'm a Nigerian-American. My parents are Nigerian. I lived in, in Nigeria. I've seen poverty firsthand. And I just knew that, you know, there has to be some kind of responsibility from the business community um, in countries where the government doesn't have enough incentive and motivation through the electoral process um, to be more responsible to the people. 
the business community has to be able to wield more of a, you know, advocacy force uh, to require that kind of responsibility from the government. And that's where my desire to do more work around anti-corruption, but from a different perspective, not from the compliance perspective that I was thrown into at Antico started from. Um, so I thought, well, you know, the World Bank is one good place to go to because at the time, the World Bank had the sanctions and debarment program that was the first of all the other MDBs. And I thought, well, how do you get into the World Bank? Oh, they would like you to have third world country experience. Well, I'm from a third world country. That must be an easy, um, easy, easy path. Not quite, to be honest. But I still went on to try to work um, in Nigeria. So I came to Nigeria. I worked in Nigeria. I went to law school. I did a lot of pro bono work. I tried to understand um, corruption from the perspective of a Nigerian business. I got the great idea of getting married to my husband who lived in the U.S., the U.S. citizen, and, you know, said, uh, what are you doing in Nigeria? You, you want to come and go to school in the U.S. This is where, you know, this is where you learn about corruption. This is where we are the most corrupt, but we are also the best at fixing our corruption problems. Um, and that was great because coming to the U.S. gave me the opportunity to go to Georgetown University, learn about, you know, international securities and financial regulations. Um, learned more about anti-corruption, the history, and then I was able to extern at the World Bank. Um, dream came true. I worked with the Integrity Compliance Office. And that, again, gave me a different perspective about, you know, uh, international development work around anti-corruption. And, and just uh, quickly to, you know, chime in there, you know, in the, in the great work that does in trying to tackle corruption and trying to get businesses to behave differently, to be more ethical, there's a, there's a little bit of a snag, which is where Businesses across Africa get sanctioned or debarred, uh, but they actually don't have the resources, capacity, or even know how to change that behavior and try to get them not sanctioned or not debarred. And so, you know, there are times when companies that genuinely want to fix these problems just don't know how, don't have the resources, don't have the capacity, um, and unfortunately, they get sanctioned. And what happens is they're then not able to bid. So if they're SMEs in Africa, they, you know, often they are. The poverty cycle continues because the large multinationals that know how continue winning those uh, opportunities, bidding opportunities for World Bank finance projects. Um, and so that was that was another eye opener for me, which got me thinking about well, what approach can you know civil society organizations and the compliance community take um, that will really meet the most vulnerable businesses halfway? Because really, they make up the critical mass. Of businesses in emerging markets, and if we can change their behavior, um, we can change, you know, behavior at scale and in, in the business environment in these countries. And so, it's it was an exciting um, journey to finally start working at the Center for International Private Enterprise that has a very similar, you know, certainly better formulated uh, theory of change than I had at the time as a, a young student. Um, so yeah, so I'm excited to talk about the work we do, I do at Site, which really aligns with. Uh, a lot of the challenges or uh, perspectives that, you know, I've developed from the challenges I, I, I've observed for uh, companies across emerging markets. All right. Thank you so much, Lola. Quite a journey that you took to end up where you are now at uh, SIPE, the Center for International Private Enterprise. Could you tell our listeners a little bit what SIPE is, what SIPE does, and what your particular role at SIPE is? Sure. So SIP is the Center for International uh, Private Enterprise. We are an affiliate of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and one of the four core institutes of the National Endowment for Democracy, the U.S. National Endowment for Democracy. And I like to, you know, explain SIP as, you know, that organization that works right at the intersection between private sector and public sector, you know, really trying to, SIP believes that a vibrant private sector is essential to a strong democracy. And so what we try to do is try to get the private sector's uh, voice, actually its capacity to advocate for, you know, market-oriented reforms, um, to advocate for good policies in the different countries. We try to get them to be more engaged and more effective in, in doing that. And uh, we work along uh, several thematic issues or, or, or focus areas, one of which is anti-corruption, which is why I'm, uh, you know, I'm here today to, to talk a little bit about that. Um, but then we also have centers of excellence, like the Trade uh, Facilitation Center for Excellence. You know, you know, we have the Anti-Corruption and Governance Center for Excellence. 
and we have the Women Economic Empowerment um, Center for Excellence. So those are some thematic issues that we uh, very specifically work along um, in trying to achieve this vision of site. This is really interesting to hear. It seems from what you described that there seems to be a particularly business-centered approach that site takes. Could you tell us a little bit more about which side of corruption you're trying to tackle, whether this is more of a supply-side oriented or demand-side oriented approach and how you, how SIPE tries to, like you mentioned the theory of change, how SIPE tries to reduce corruption? So, so that's a great question. When you think about it, like the supply-side of corruption and the demand-side of corruption, I think it doesn't matter what side you tackle, you are tackling corruption, right? Because if you think about corruption like a market, right? If you deprive the market of supply, then you basically fizzle, make the market fizzle out of, of relevance. So we, we do take a business-led and business-centered approach. And really, the ultimate goal is really to try to reduce corruption and increase transparency and accountability, even in public sector um, administration, right? So the ultimate goal is really to tackle corruption, both in the private sector and in the public sector, but it takes a business-led. So we take the we want the business community to be galvanized, to be the voice, uh, be the, uh, you know, the, the interveners for uh, a, a cleaner business environment, and then form a collective action um, force, or at least form a critical mass that's able to change behavior in the public sector. And so across, SIPE works in over 100 countries now, just about 100 countries now, and in the regions where we work, you know, mostly emerging market economies on anti-corruption issues, this is consistent. We, we, we work in, typically working with the chambers of commerce or professional associations. Um, for instance, a very successful project that SIPE um, has been running for about seven years in Thailand is with the Thai Institute of Directors. It's called the Collective Action Against Corruption Project. And it's one of the most successful collective action projects um, that you know you you'll find because what you have is more than um, 60% of the listed companies in Thailand all in this collective action group, and it's more than them just pledging to to do business without giving bribes and and, and you know do business ethically, but it's them being able to demonstrate that they have systems implemented in their business operations that ensures that they do that, and those systems are you know, independently verified. Um, so that's one, you know, successful approach that SIPE is trying to replicate across Africa with lots of modifications that will be relevant to the context in Africa. And this is the Ethics First initiative that SIPE would launch um, at the end of 2020. Essentially, Ethics First would, en would enable SMEs across Africa, first 12 countries where we work in Africa, um, to go through a pre-screening, a pre-KYC due diligence exercise. Um, now, if you you know if you if you know about uh, um, compliance and due diligence work for multinationals that do business in Africa, it's one of the most expensive things to do where you don't have enough access to data. There's not enough data, or it's not easily verifiable. And so, Ethics First is really going to make that sort of data to make KYC screening or due diligence screening for firms across Africa easily accessible and verify verifiable. And and so. The flip side of that, uh, and, and this is another interesting thing about site work, is we want to create an incentive for companies in Africa to increase or improve or enhance their ethical commitments. Not just check the box, you know, not just tick the paper and say, oh, you want a governance and audit committee? We have that. Uh, you want us to have a policy that nobody ever reads? We have that. It's not just that, but actually be able to demonstrate that those policies are effective and are being implemented in your companies. And for companies to go through that exercise in Africa, it's new to them because there is no motivation to do that. You don't really hear of anti-corruption enforcement in Africa against companies. Not really. There's just too much public sector officials to chase around and investigate. Um, and there's not enough resources, right? So companies don't really get the attention from law enforcement and so that's not a motivation you would know that's also the case in the u.s where you know the fcpa was lying dormant since 1977 until you know enforcement action ramped up around 2000 2001 and then businesses changed their behavior and now they are holding themselves to account you know their spread to accountability in africa it's not the case 
And so with Ethics First, we can create a system where we incentivize businesses um, indirectly um, to change their business behavior and open up opportunities for, for investment. And the idea really ultimately is to drive down the cost of compliance and drive up the cost of corruption. Because right now it's the reverse. In, in most, many parts of, you know, many African countries, Nigeria, Kenya is the same, Ghana, we hear this all the time. The cost of compliance is high. It's expensive to afford a compliance consultant um, to, to help you set up proper compliance systems in place. It is expensive, literally, right? But in addition to that, it's also expensive for a small business to say, I wouldn't pay that bribe when everybody else might be paying the bribe or when they will get singled out, right? And there are a few examples we can talk about a little bit. So it's quite expensive for businesses to say we would lose business when you're talking about a market that is already shrinking drastically. But in terms of you know paying the bribe and getting involved in corruption, in the short term, it's beneficial to the company. And so if we can flip that on its head, then we can have a multiplier effect of businesses changing behavior and becoming more ethical. Great, that sounds like a very interesting project and you already kind of answered the next question that I had, what the biggest challenges for small or, or bigger businesses in countries that you're working on are. But maybe single out an example, what is a typical challenge that a company faces when it's, uh, for example, competing for a tender or something? I mean, that's that's an excellent exa um, question because we, so right now uh, we're working with, the University of Sussex in England and basically interviewing a few business leaders to say to, to ask them, why are you taking a stance um, that is, you know, sort of goes against the tide in your country? Um, everybody's paying a bribe, you know, to, to get by. And, and why are you doing things differently and, and getting singled out for doing things differently? And I will be careful not to call the name of country of some of a particular a few companies, but Let's give, let me give you two examples. So in Kenya, very recently, we started working on what we call a compliance club system for, for small businesses. And the idea really is to give small businesses a support network um, of other businesses that are taking a stance for ethics and integrity, but are saying, this is hard um, because we're deciding um, not to cut corners and um, avoid paying our taxes, or we're deciding in the case of suppliers We're deciding not to mark up our prices because during the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, which is still ongoing, healthcare sector suppliers marked up the prices significantly and they were in collusion with the, you know, the, the government agency that, that purchases, this is the KEMSA, um, that purchases supplies for the government. They were in collusion with them to, you know, to get paid for these marked up prices. Now, With these agencies, they were not able to, the, during the lockdown, they were not able to go and supply their goods anymore. And so, you know, if they marked up their prices, then Kemsa would come collect their goods or find a way, give them a pass to deliver their goods. And so they will, they will be able to deliver the goods. Now, with the ethical agencies that are not in collusion with Kemsa, well, they can't supply their goods to Kemsa they, because, you know, they're, they, they've not agreed to pay any bribes. So nobody's going to pick up the goods and they, they're not going to be able to get a pass and they're not going to be able to move around. Well, we, in the compliance club group of 10, you know, we started to provide uh, training around multiple different kinds of things that are not even corruption related. For instance, digital marketing um, was something that we trained about because we're saying if you can market digitally, you will be able to sell your goods online and you will be able to rely on the, you know, the service providers who can move around, who have passes. And you won't have to pay a government official a bribe so that, you know, they can give you a pass or they can come pick up your goods. And that was one, you know, that's one example that you, you, you see where you actually have to go the extra mile, you know, as a civil society support system organization to help businesses see a way around doing business without having to compromise their stance, right? And, and this has to happen consistently. That support has to happen consistently until these businesses can form a stronger bond um, and, and respond to corruption challenges like this one, you know, real issues that arise. Another example would be a regional multinational company in Sudan deciding to stay away from a sector where it has all of the capacity and expertise um, to invest in that sector, an extractive sector, but just because of the overwhelming 
control of the government in that sector, there's no way that they can be involved in that sector without money laundering, without being involved in money laundering. It's a big company. They make good money, right? But this is a whole opportunity that they're losing out on it, it, to the terms of millions of dollars. And this business, just this company just says, we, we won't go there. We can't go there. We have the expertise. We have the capacity. We're shutting down operations. We're absorbing our staff in that part of the company into the other parts of the company just because we've been in business for 135 years. Our name is what we have and we have to stick with it. And they stay away from that business opportunity. The good outcome of that is during the recent revolution, this company, the business leader, was able to broker peace. Because if you think about it, if you're in bed with the government, it's often hard for you to be the one brokering peace between the people demanding for anti-corruption and the people who are considered the corrupt block, right? And they were able to broker peace that really turned the tide of things when, it, you know, when the revolution was at its peak in that country. I, I'm sure we can publish an article um, about this when this research is done and when we get, you know, when we get the permission of the company to put the name out there. Um, but it's really an exciting example of how the business community can fight corruption, especially when it matters, when lives and livelihoods um, of people are, are on the line. There are so many interesting things you mentioned. Um, I want to pick up on, first on one of them. You mentioned that it's a a thorny challenge to create incentives for business to act with integrity, let's say in the broadest sense, to avoid corruption, if in the surrounding there is a lot of corruption, right? It kind of reminds me of this approach in academia right now that tries to understand corruption through a social norms lens, right? You have this, sometimes they, they are split off into descriptive and injunctive norms. Descriptive norms describe that How many people are actually doing it and injunctive norms basically describe whether it's acceptable or not and in many cases with corruption you have this interesting conflict that people dislike corruption they find it unacceptable but they engage in it because everybody else is doing it too i've been thinking about this a lot and i find it very difficult to come up with a very clear solution to this problem because i can totally sympathize with people that just say Yeah, I would love to not do it, but I have to. And you mentioned some of the costs that I could have for not paying a bribe. I wonder, do you have any tips on how to convince people to abstain from corruption? Is there anything particular where you feel like, well, this strategy, uh, when talking with businesses, when talking with individuals, seems to work? I mean, Nils, you're asking the question that I get asked every time, you know, we start off a new anti-corruption program in in any of these african countries for some businesses to be more um you know specific about the problem it's a survival issue for some businesses corruption is a survival issue it determines whether the police and the security apparatus will protect the goods and the lives of your staff in certain regions and the niger delta part of nigeria is a good example or in the north but more so in the niger delta part of, of the country And so when we're speaking with businesses, and I'll give you an example of, a, of an idea that we have in a recent in a publication that's coming out soon at site. Basically, it's a guide for SMEs on how to implement compliance programs that is realistic. When we're speaking with businesses or when we're speaking with business leaders or civil society organizations, we really have to be honest about what solutions we're preferring because we can't hide our heads in the sand and say, These are the standards. These are the compliance standards. You should never make a facilitation payment and that's it, right? The reality is in many of these places where corruption is a survival issue, your staff have to get through dangerous terrain to get to work or su supply goods. Otherwise, you know, you, you have to pay the police officers to do their jobs, um, which is a facilitation payment. Sometimes you're paying the commissioner of police a salary and he gives you protection because, you know, you, you have to do that. In that situation, the company would pay those bribes or facilitation payments and record them as consulting fees. That's what happens if you don't, if you're not realistic about the problem. You allow people the opportunity to check the box and say, oh, we don't pay bribes, we just pay consultants. We pay security consultants. That's what we do, right? And so what we what we do is we really listen and try to come up with solutions that are that's relevant, that will have not short-term impacts, but long-term impacts. And so we start off with talking about the short-term, 
And in talking about the short term, we listen. We listen more and then we start to talk about solutions in the long term and those solutions will be very nuanced. Now, let me give you a quick example. Project we're working on in Tanzania. This is with the UN Global Compact Network in Tanzania. Um, it's most partly funded by the UNDP and, and the NED and, and SITE. And I led you know, a research to try to understand the experience of businesses in Tanzania because what the Global Compact wanted to do or wants to do is develop very meaningful, useful guidelines for businesses, small, medium, large, businesses throughout Tanzania to implement. Now, they know they will have to sell this to businesses that say, oh, give it up. You can't do business here without, you know, you just have to be involved, right? You need control. You need to be in the good books of the government to do business. So I asked the difficult questions. And one of the things we found out is not one business leader I spoke with, not one business membership organization that was represented at the five focus group meetings we had with over 70 people, not one of them said you can do business go by a whole month without paying a facilitation payment at, at the very least right and so it came time in the guideline to talk about facilitation payments and our guide guidance is no you can't don't pay those those things the, the law in that country says you shouldn't well what we have now and in our report that you know i'll, I'll certainly share with you that will be launched um, soon what we have is what we call an incident management system, which is really, that should be what is in a compliance program for companies um, in those kinds of countries in Africa. You won't see this in the compliance program of Walmart in, in the US because facilitation payments, I mean, you know you're not likely to have your staff worried about paying facilitation payments. Um, but if you're worried about having your logistic officers um, out on the streets, Zimbabwe is another example, being demanded, uh, you know, being asked to pay bribes or, 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 or make payments, which really range from small to large payments. What do you do as a compliance officer? And, and we have this uh, protocol of three R's is what we call it. It's really simple. Three R's. We say, hey, here's what you need to do. You need to accept that your company is likely to pay bribes. You are most certainly likely to pay bribes. The question is, how do you respond to that reality? Not saying don't pay the bribes because they'll say, yeah, we didn't pay the bribes. We just used it to buy lunch for ourselves. And, you know, if that's on the company expense. It's... So here's what you have to do. First of all, you have to do the first R, which is when your employees are asked to pay bribes, respond. Provide them with realistic ways of responding to that demand. Some of them could be saying to the public officer demanding the bribe, hey, look, you know what? My company does not allow me to do this. But here is what my company can do. If you would like the government agency you work for to provide better health care for your children or for yourself and your family, to provide you know, better schooling options for you, if you would like them to do some things that require big reform, you could tell us, we'll take that back to our company and our company would you know, relay this to the Chamber of Commerce that they're part of and make that a primary issue to be fixed. This bribe is not going to help you as much as that kind of reform would help you. Provide them with those kinds of responses. Like, I can imagine you tell a public office officer on the road in Lagos, where I am currently, this kind of thing. like, oh, come on, just get away. Just go, 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 please. You're, you're, you know, that's one way to just get away, get around these things, you know. And I, I, we suggest that give them three or four of these kinds of responses. Look, we really would like to pay you this bribe because we know you might want it and all. But hey, we can't do that because blah, 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 blah. So have a response, but also escalate that escalate that to your compliance team. Why? So that they can record it. That's the second R. So you want a response, you want them to record it, and then when they record it, um, it's important for them to be able to say to the, demand, the people demanding for the bribes, hey, our compliance officer can, you know, take this further. And by the time you're talking to a compliance officer, you're talking to a senior manager in the company, and typically what happens at this point in Nigeria, we're working on a maritime uh, project in the maritime sector, once the demand for a bribe gets escalated, it dies. It dies because the more senior officers in many sectors and the governance agencies are less likely to want to compromise, especially when they've made a name for being ethical and getting that high up. And so once your director of compliance is involved in a demand for a bribe, he's able to pick up the phone and call this agency and say, hey, your officer here is demanding a bribe, and then it dies. And so we have the, uh, the three R's. I I'll send you more information about the R's, but essentially we want that recording to happen because this is where SIPE's advocacy work comes in. We want 
the company to be able to know and record how much it pays in bribes every month, every year, and then pass that on to the national chamber, the city chamber, the business membership organization that it's a part of. And that's useful information to show to the government to say, hey, look, your internally generated revenue from taxes, from licenses, from all your business revenue channels is low because those funds are redistributed to the public officers on the streets who collect them from our, our employees. And this is what it is. Nigeria, Liberia, um, Kenya, the case is the same where they can't fund public infrastructure um, projects because IGR is low. I think it's Ghana and Rwanda that have the highest IGR on, on the continent. IGR is low. The, the problem is, oh, we need to borrow funds. Many people are not paying taxes. No, they will pay taxes. They will pay taxes to government if there was no middleman who said, we will make your taxes go away. Those tax figures, they're too big. We'll make it go away. Just give me something. I'll give you a tax certificate. Uh, and, and that happens in South Africa too. Anyway, that, let's, let's continue the conversation. No, that sounds very interesting. And I would like to follow up on one thing because it seems to me that the anti-corruption community has for long been very obsessed with finding one-size-fits-all solutions for the problem of corruption. And what you're discussing here is that so much depends on the specific context, not only the, the context on a, on a national or regional level, but also what kind of business uh, are we talking about? Are we even talking about business or are we talking about other forms of, of corruption? So from your experience, how do you think that solutions that you come up with, like the three R's that you just mentioned, they are adaptable to other contexts from, from which they are originally been developed? Or do you think that you have to look at each and individual context and then find an anti-corruption solution for the problem at hand? So, I mean, that's an excellent question. I think there are some solutions that are, that are broadly applicable, but when you start to drill down to solutions that you need to address contextual issues and social norms, you would not find those, those broadly applicable solutions sufficient, right? So on the Africa team, and, and this is the case for my colleagues in the Latin America working on anti-corruption um, issues in Latin America, in the, on the Latin America team, on the global team, on the Europe and Eurasia team, we have some regional projects. We have some projects that have regional relevance. A good example is the Ethics First project, right? The procedure and why it has, you know, broad-based relevance is because the process across everywhere in the world right now for vetting and conducting due diligence and screening companies, there's a convergence of that process, of that due diligence process. You know what kind of information you're looking for, right? And so ethics first makes sense for almost any SME in South Africa and Ghana and Kenya. And so developing a, an initiative like that has broad applicability. However, when you start to talk about, let's say, a transactional cost of corruption example, like I told you about, uh, maybe I've not talked about that, I'll talk about that a little bit, but a project we're doing in Nigeria where what we do is we take the private sector guys and we say to them, hey, you want to tell us which regulatory agencies are the most high risk for corruption, and we want to come up with constructive ways for them to reform their operations so that it reduces those opportunities for corruption, right? When you want to do that kind of project, you can't do that in Sudan. You have to take a different approach in Sudan. The private sector organization, uh, representative organization, is not strong enough. It's not at that point to be able to do that. At the same time, the government agencies, they've been rebuilt now, actually, but not many of them control their, you know, are very functional or were very functional, I should say, right? And so the type of corruption you're targeting in Sudan is different from that type, the, you know, the level or the nature of corruption you're talking about in, in Nigeria. Same thing with Kenya, where we're working with Kenya passed the Bribery Act of 2016, which is modeled like the UK Bribery Act, right? It has a default requirement for companies to implement compliance standards in the operations. So uh, you have a private sector, KEPSA, the Kenya Private Sector Alliance, very proactive in you know requiring that the government does more in um, in terms of anti-corruption reform um, you have this bribery act passed for businesses and then the question is the government now wants to create put out procedural requirements for how companies should comply with this act now the problem there is different because 
those requirements become so onerous that we know that they become useless. If it's so difficult for companies to comply with the Bribery Act, they would not do it. It will become a checkbox exercise again, right? And so what we've done or what we've been doing is working with CAPSA uh, and the Ethics and Anti-Corruption Commission to create guidelines that, one, creates incentives for businesses to comply with them, but also makes them realistic for in terms of how businesses will comply with them. You know, and so you're absolutely you know, right in thinking that we certainly don't cannot have a one-size-fits-all solution when you start to drill down into the nuances and the social norms. But there are still certain interventions that have cross-cutting relevance and application, and those should certainly be backed and supported by the biggest institutions like the AFDB, the World Bank is doing, or the IFC. You know, the largest institutions, global institutions, should back those. And then we work with from the bottom up with the business um, leaders to to back the other ones that have more rooted uh, solutions in the social norms and the nuances um, around corruption in those countries. I wanted to ask you about one thing that just occurred to me when you described it. I think one word that repeatedly came up is, is realistic, right? You, you seem to be sort of adopting an approach where you don't really take, a, let's say, template compliance guideline that was maybe developed in a completely different context, let's say somewhere in the West, and just apply it to a certain country. And I think we know by now that this approach has failed, at least most more often than not. It seems to be more like you're tailoring the approaches to the particular context, as, as you've outlined. The question that then directly came to my mind is sort of like, what is the strategy that you have for um, evaluating the success of it? Do you have sort of programs that try to accompany the implementation and try to provide evidence for its effectiveness? And if you could speak to that, it would be very interesting, especially for the academic side of our listeners, because there is currently this push for evidence-based policymaking. And it's a big discussion on how you can actually properly evaluate the success of anti-corruption. So that's that's a brilliant question. I think let's go to we have to go to the Thailand Collective Action you know project that's ongoing, and my colleague Gibson, um, you know, and John Morel can provide a lot of good information about that pro project. And why I want to go there is because you see, with measuring impact, you never really can do it in about a year you know, impact in with regards to anti-corruption type of work and, you know, work that has impacts on, you know, social, you know, social norms and, and behaviors. You can't do it, really do it in two years because, again, another example, we did a transactional cost of corruption work in Nigeria. We discovered what the loopholes were in two major regulatory agencies. I really want to say the names, but, you know, I do want to still live in Lagos. I, I still I like it here. Um, and and they're, they're great agencies, excellent guys. They work with us very well. And this was in 2014. And by 2016, we made recommendations to them. And, and part of why I don't want to say the names is because, you know, we made recommendations that collaboratively, we try to be very collaborative, but at least for one of them, we had to go to the press to get them to the table to, to take seriously those recommendations. By the time they implemented those recommendations, there was a lot of change. Businesses thought, wow, you know, they, they, it's so much easier to transact with these guys. You're more transparent. It's easy. This was 2016. Fast forward to 2018, two years later, we polled businesses and one of these agencies was back on the top of the list of high risk businesses to transact with, back on the top of the list of high risk for corruption. And what do I mean? You see, measuring impacts, it's fluid, you know, and you want to be very particular, ask the right questions, because right now we want to ask the question, well, why was there a reversal in all the good effort that we made, right? And there are several reasons. One of them is change in management, Sintun at the top is important in the government agencies. You know, there are several reasons. Uh, Nigeria had an election, you know, election year, and the heads of these agencies changed, and, and then um, focus or the priorities changed. All that is in good information, but it also points to one thing. You have to institutionalize you know, the commitment to ethics and the effort to keep those agencies accountable. And what you find sometimes is one senior officer, one director, one senior manager is the very dogged ethical guy. And so everyone falls in line for as long as he's in the office or he's in charge of that ethical system. But those values don't translate throughout the organization. Um, so I'll, I'll go back to 
a project that we've been working on for over seven years because that's where we can see how do you measure you know impact and in the CSE um, case, which is the Thailand CSE Collective Action Against Corruption case, which is with the Thailand Institute of Directors, it took years to develop um, the tools and the resources. But one thing was, was consistent. The folks who were committed to developing this model and to seeing it through to the end were themselves committed. So ethical leadership is critical. Personal responsibility is critical. They were themselves committed and they, they stuck with it through the very difficult few years. And of course, with a lot of site um, backing, support, funding, and technical assistance. Now you have businesses that may never have made the jump to say, we're going to take the risk. I call it a risk to be non-corrupt in a country like that. You know, we're going to take the plunge and say, we're also going to stick up with, I tell you something, um, and I, I hear this happen in Thailand too. About 10 years ago in Nigeria, when one of the you know, largest uh, anti-corruption um, CSOs uh, you know, that works from the business perspective, it's called the Convention for Business Integrity. We, they're one of our partners. About 10 years ago, when they tried to start working on anti-corruption work from a business perspective, they approached one of the leading, and also one of our partners now on anti-corruption work, one of the leading private sector membership organizations to say, hey, partner with us on this on anti-corruption work. We had Siemens come and tell their story to convince the private sector organization to partner with us on anti-corruption work. And the response from the highest authority was, oh, we don't want to seem anti-government. So what does that tell you from the private sector representative organization, right? And, and that's the case with, you know, with, in countries where you, you know you can't do business without being pro-government. But now you have more than half of the businesses listed on the stock exchange in Thailand in the collective action group. They can be seen as anti-government if that's how it's interpreted because, back to the norms you were talking about, Niels, and, and that's how I would say we measure value. Now, they're able to ask government agencies um, to say, well, you have to tell us, they're able to get businesses to report their experience every time they transact with a government agency and they're able to publish that report without fear. Now, it takes years of talking about it, having real conversations about it, and then having people take not just the I pledge stance, but I pledge and I can demonstrate that I'm actually staying away from um, corrupt activity. I'll give you another quick example about measurement. And again, in Thailand, because we've been there for long enough and we can measure progress when you, you know, you've had some time um, working on this and tracking how it's going. In the collective action group, um, there are a group of uh, companies that are in the logistics business. And these are the companies, the transporters, they move their trucks, they move trucks of goods from the ports into the city and, and around the country. And they, they, usually, they have a parking place around the ports, but it's on the streets, it's right on the road. And of course, uh, they, would al they would always be parking infractions, traffic infractions, parking in the wrong place. And, and to get away from these, these companies end up paying bribes. Now, back to the three hours, response, report, record. Through the collective action group, companies were able to talk about paying bribes as a problem. Couldn't happen before. And then they preferred a solution. They put their monies together. They financed building of a park around that area where these trucks can park. And these trucks pay for parking there. And so that parking lot is self-sustainable. And they can now pay taxes to the government by having that kind of proper arrangement as opposed to paying corrupt public officials on the street, you know, to, to park on the streets and, and they have to record, you know, those bribes as bribes if they follow the three R's, um, which has led to this reform. Or they might have been recording it as lunch or something else, which when it's investigated, it gets their companies into trouble. You know, so so that's that's one way to measure to measure impact. I, I think the important thing is really you want to ask the right questions, and you want to remember that this change doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen so quickly. So if you're measuring impact in two years, three years, four years, ask the right questions, and you want to also ask the right questions because that would inform how you how you modify your project. And for us, that in the transactional cost of corruption in Nigeria, for instance asking the question about why this agency is back on the list has helped us improve that project. Because now we're saying, okay, now we need to institutionalize that change. It's not enough to change your operations while 
you know, the senior officer who will be the coordinating person in the public agency is, is, in, is in office. If he retires tomorrow, then that whole project is, is, fail, is a fail. So we want to do more about that. And so the reform has to go from changing your systems, changing your operations, to training, to creating accountability channels, creating working groups that would work with these agencies to make sure that they are consistent, and on and on and on. Well, thank you so much, Lola. It's a good reminder that it takes a lot of time to fight corruption and that it's not done in a couple of months or years, but that everybody who is working in anti-corruption has to have some stamina to, to hang in there. Um, but before we wrap up, I would like to, to transition a little bit and ask you about your tips for young anti-corruption students, let's say. A lot of listeners on our podcast, they're young students who want to become an advocate for anti-corruption and work in anti-corruption in the future, what would be an advice that you have for them? Chris, first of all, I want to commend them before I advise them. I want to commend them for being, being very focused about you know where they want to work in um, at a very early age because I kind of stumbled on you know anti-corruption I, I wasn't sure I you know I wasn't sure um, but I was sure that I wanted to do something that was uh, responsible and would have a multiplier effect um, on on the lives of people and so corruption obviously is the one thread that connects every evil in governance and security and everything and I thought well that's 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 where to start so for these young students who already figured it out, I mean, they're smarter than me because they've already figured it out before, you know, before, before they start off. But one thing I would definitely say to them, um, and this is from personal experience, is the risk of burning out, it's, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that you can burn out. It's a real thing that, you know, you, if you've read Tom Burgess's book, Looting Machine, books like that, if you've let, read those, you can quickly start to feel like, well, I'm not going to be able to change anything. What's the point? So there's the risk of burning out is real. So what I will say is, before you start off in anti-corruption, accept that you are not going to be able to change anything at scale, right? It's possible. Because that will keep you in the game and you might just be the one to change something at scale, right? But I want to keep you in the game because you might be the one to figure out how to change how to change things at scale. So stay in the game by accepting that, okay, I'm not going to be able to save 1 million fish. Accept that you can start by saving one and two and three. Accept that, you know, you can stay in the game because for as long as you fight corruption, a poor woman and her kid somewhere in a poor country would get to be able to live in a safer place. Um, 2.6 million people in IDPs, would at least get the, the food that's, that's supposed to get to them because you're working in a civil society organization or you're writing a report or something. So stay in the game, stay in the game. You might just be able to change things in the long run. So please don't burn out. Tom talked about you know, being depressed when he started working on this. And, um, and I, I talked about that because I wanna say it's a real thing you can burn out, but just accept that one step every day is enough because it's not about um, changing decades of corrupt practices around the world, um, you know, that you're in this game. No, it's about adding your voice to the many or few, I don't know who is outweighed, of us who are in the anti-corruption effort. So um, stay in the game and, and don't burn out. It's a real thing to burn out. Watch out for your mental health and remind yourself that, you know, you can't, you can't do it all. The reason you burn out is because you think you can change it all. Um, so you can't do it all. Um, but every day that you stay in the game is, is, is a huge impact. That would be my advice. That's a great advice. I think it's a very good point to also end the, the podcast. I mean, it reminded me of an advice that I read at the very beginning uh, when the corona crisis hit. It was a post that basically say like, said, like, play the long game. So really mm. take care of your mental health. You know, you might feel like right now is the time where you can actually hammer out a lot of work because you're at home and feel lucky enough that you can work at home but really pay attention that you don't uh, sacrifice your mental health for some short-term gains so i can totally agree with it maybe as a last question as you know we always like to ask at the very end uh, pick up the podcast can be a book a movie uh, a song i mean i actually had the recommendation from a nigerian songmaker um techno uh, he composed a song about anti-corruption which i listened to and i really like it 
So we're going to link to that. But what, what's your pick of the podcast? Yeah, I mean, that's a good one. So I listen to your podcast all the time. And I know you ask people this question. And I, I thought that I should have mine figured out by now. But um, I still haven't. So let me go with I want to go with a book, but I think I might, um, I might also want to throw in a song. So first, a good book to read might be the book I'm reading right now, which is, you know, The Looting Machine. I, I think it helps people understand how corruption can actually be a survival issue and, you know, ask the right quest, the real questions about if you're trying to change behavior, what can you really do from the outside and what can you do from the inside? You know, because all of us are either on the outside or on the inside. Um, so it's a good book to read. Uh, it's thought provoking. Fortunately, you asked for just one. So I think I'll stop there. Although there are a few excellent Netflix movies, you know, that I, I, I can send a list to, to you about that I'll say, you know, would be great. And also there's one song by Fowls the Bad Guy. So great that you listen to techno, but there's this other musician of conscience in Nigeria called Fowls the Bad Guy. You know that one? I don't. No, oh, I can send you a link. Yeah, he's, that would be great. he's done a few things. One of them is not so original, but it's still, it's still very interesting. Um, it's the This Is Nigeria song, which uh, is, is a version of the uh, This Is America song. But it's interesting because it, one of the lines in there says, this is Nigeria where the, where the police station closes at 6 p.m. because of security reasons. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's a good one. It's a good one to check out on YouTube. Oh, thank you so much, Lola. I will listen to it right after, uh, right after this recording. So, Lola, we are at the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for finding the time today. We are really grateful to have you on our podcast and uh, keep up all the good work that you're doing. It's really admirable. So thank you very much. Thank you both so very much for having me. I really have enjoyed chatting with you you both and I do enjoy listening to your podcast. So I'll keep listening. I'll just skip this one and not listen to this one. I hope you, you both stay safe um, and, and healthy. All the best. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Lola's work at Saip, check out the show notes of this episode. Also, make sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We post much corruption-related content there. So if you haven't already, make sure to click the follow button. We would also appreciate it if you could use your own social media channels to post about Kickback and recommend us to your friends. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for now. Have a great week.